You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Well, hey, my, uh, my cover story for Missian last week is an uh, annual guys weekend trip uh, in the mountains up by Mount Hood, uh, or I'm scared of First Peter and I ran away. So we'll never know the truth. We'll never know what happened, but um, it's good to be back. Uh, it's good to, to be here and to, to just be in God's Word, just to sit with you guys and be under truth, okay? There's so much untruth in the world. There's so much, you look anywhere that you are, and anything that's popular has levels of untruth in it, so to sit in God's Word is so good. Um, but it's also hard, right? We've been walking through the last couple Sundays, and as Randall's just up here, these aren't just like, yeah, you know, feel-good messages. They're, they're deep good messages. You know, I, th- I think about, uh, we've, a lot of us have read like Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe kind of books, right? And there's the, there's no spoilers, sorry. If you haven't read it at this point, I'm sorry. But, um, but like with, with the White Witch, when, you know, she knows the deep magic, right? She knows this is happening, but Aslan, he knew the deeper magic. There's this deeperness that is good, and there is something about suffering with others and rejoicing with those who rejoice that is just deeper. It is just something good and redeeming. But we've been walking through some difficult passages, some good stuff to try to get into the mindset of first century converted Jews and Gentiles mixing together. What does this look like? Um, The last few weeks, uh, Randall's been walking through what it looks like to be honoring as we live under human institutions, and especially for first century Jews. What does that look like? How did it trigger them? How would they have felt? Uh, there's government, workplace for them. There's the, the home life. How does Christian conduct and faith live this out? Um, and one of the main things to take away was just the, these words of like submission to all these institutions and authorities and this kind of thing. It never meant worship. Right? There was a huge divide between submission and what you're actually giving your heart and your worship to. That is always set aside for God. That is always for Him and for Him alone. But it's interesting that now in our passage, Peter has been addressing very specific people and specific aspects of life, and now he's putting it all together now as a community of believers. Kind of saying, hey, all of you have your own, where you're coming from, your own theologies, your own kind of philosophies of life, and where you're at, and how this speaks to you. But now, as a community, okay, and this is how it starts, verse 8, finally, all of you, right, everyone together, I'm speaking to the community, addressing everyone in this new belief system, this new way of life that is the way of Jesus. It's unlike anything else the world has seen right? This upside-down way of living. It's so counterintuitive to the world and its way, right? Now, if you were to boil down to everybody, regardless of your status, regardless of where you're at, how you're feeling, how this is hitting to you, to everybody, if you were to boil down to summarize, this is what core Christian living looks like. This is what it is. Like, it'd be hard to come up with that, right? We could do a lot of brain work, and we can do this. Let's let God's Word (laughs) speak for us, right? So verse 8, he says, to boil it down, five core characteristics that apply to all Jesus followers. Have unity of mind, have sympathy, have brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. It is a good list. 
That is an incredible list. And we're going to walk through these. And one thing I love to do, instead of defining these things and these aspects in just English or what it means to us, I like Scripture to define Scripture, right? And a lot of times you hear, you hear Peter and Paul, and they wrote much of what is the commentary on the way of Jesus and what that looks like into our life and our workplace and our churches, all this kind of stuff. And some people are like, well, did Peter steal from Paul? Did Paul steal from Peter? They both learned from Jesus. And then they commentated about it, okay? So it actually makes sense that they would sound similar. So I'm going to let Paul actually define some of what Peter is talking about. So Peter would write unity of mind, or another word for that is harmony. So what Paul wrote about this, Romans 12:16, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then later in 2.2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Right? Remember, like as example, Randall walked us through an aspect in the home this last week where wives specifically, uh, it was a time where they had to take on the faith of their husband and his friends. Well, what if she didn't believe in what they believed in? What if she believed in Jesus and they didn't, right? That tension that they were supposed to live in. And Peter's saying that's one example, but Peter is calling all followers of Jesus to one way. This is how he is coaching this new church movement to live out this gospel message, especially in a society where they don't accept your faith. This beautiful, humble life emulating the ways of Jesus. Peter goes on. Peter says, have sympathy. Paul writes Romans 12. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. And then in 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Right? This question can be asked in any era do you care about what your community cares about? People obviously care about what, what you care about, what, what I care Like, I care about what I care about. So if I care about what someone else cares about, that is the way of going back to the commandments of loving your neighbor as yourself, right? Which leads us to brotherly love. Peter says have brotherly love. There's a couple here. 1 Thessalonians 4. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. How is that done? 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that he, being Jesus, laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And then Jesus in John 13.35 says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's, it's literally in the name, right? Love, as defined by Scripture, is self-sacrifice, laying down your life, self-sacrifice, and brother is one another, right? So it is self-sacrifice for one another. Peter goes on, be compassionate or tender-hearted. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This one should hit hard, right? What has Christ forgiven you of? What has he forgiven me of? Did we deserve it? Now turn around and that should soften our hearts because that is the grace that we give to other people. It's undeserved and it's radical, right? Peter goes on, humility, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. 
This is beautiful. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now this one's fascinating because unlike some of the other ones in the Greco-Roman society, this one would have been very much scorned and looked down upon, okay? Being humble was degrading your social status, which was everything, right? This would, this would just not be acceptable to them. But as we just read, the example is Christ, who was the ultimate, and he laid it all down to become the least. And this is a bit of an equation, okay? I tried to rewrite it a little bit, and let's see if this makes sense. If you consider yourself a Christian, don't go off on your own tangents of belief, but believe in the shared word of God. This will open your eyes to see the world as something to be saved and cared for, not trampled on and dominated. You will then suffer with those who suffer and rejoice with those who rejoice because we have a larger family perspective. And this love for brothers and sisters in Christ will soften our hearts to great compassion, acknowledging no one is better than the other, which leads to a humble lifestyle that reflects a God who emptied himself to give us a perfect example so we didn't have to be. This love for brothers and sisters in Christ should soften our heart for compassion, right? It should be this tender-heartedness. And what I love is the question, if Paul or Peter or Jesus, for that matter, was standing right here in the flesh looking at this community, and what would they say to us? What would, they, what would he say? And I love that I don't think it'd be any different than what we just read. I think that it, that is the beauty and the glory of God's eternal word. He would look at us, and we, as we look around, look around. There's no two people that are the same. We all come from different walks of life, from different experiences, different hurts, different joys and philosophies. And the word to us is this. Is our community in harmony? Are we in unity of mind? Are we rejoicing with those who rejoice? Are we weeping with those who weep? Are we witnessing to our Christ well in our love for one another? Are our hearts soft towards each other in compassion? Are we living as though the needs and the hurts and the joys of the person right next to you are just as, if not more important, than our own? These are the same questions, man. It's crazy. First century converts and us today, right? Our context is our own, but the word does not change. Don't worry, guys. We're only one verse in. This is good, okay? (laughs) What's even more beautiful is how this is also a Christian response to the philosophies of a day. I really love nerding out on philosophy and Greek and Roman philosophy. It's it's crazy. Um, But most of Greek and Roman philosophy, especially in this time, was different and nuanced, but it had these core values, which is fascinating. These core values were based on the idea of how could humans thrive? How could a human being thrive and be happy and just feel good? We all want that, right? That, that, that's a good thing, right? Well, here's the, the three-step of what the, whatever your philosophy is has to include these three things, okay? And they had some words to it, but in English, it's undisturbedness, okay? Or unperturbed, right? Self-sufficiency, and freedom from suffering. Okay, 
In other words, the philosophers or Peter Day were, were, as they were thinking of the question, what is happiness, if you're undisturbed, you are self-sufficient, relying on no one, and you have no suffering, happiness, right? And as much as I want to give a hearty amen to that, Christians are called to be different, right? How can you suffer with those who are suffering if your desire is to be freed from suffering? How can you empty yourself, taking on the form of a servant, if the desire is for yourself and others to be self-sufficient? How can you be undisturbed when professing to have a faith, or put your faith in a gospel that compels you to care and lay down your life for others out of love? See, it changes the question. The question for Christian philosophy is not what it means to be happy. Happy is not the end goal. The goal is this a people group who have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And Peter goes on with his counterintuitive thinking and how to respond to those who would be hostile to this new way of Christ. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. All right, check out this progression. God's word is eternal, meaning the heart of anything called scripture carries weight throughout all generations, regardless of culture, okay? However, even throughout the biblical narrative, we see cultural changes and shifts as God's people grow and what it means to follow God. When God's people first came out of Egypt, it it was the Wild West. I mean, it was the Wild East, technically, but there's no law or judicial system, right? It's just a large group of Israelites that are just there. So God gives them basic rules for how to live in community. This is what I want my community to look like. In one particular instance of violence, God says this in Exodus 21:23. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Okay, you ever heard that phrase like eye for an eye, right? This is where, this is where it's coming from. Later on, as priests in the tabernacle are being instituted and taught how to lead the people further instructed Leviticus 24:19 if anyone injures his neighbor as he has done it shall be done to him fracture for fracture eye for eye tooth for tooth okay now fast forward to Jesus on his famous sermon on the mount which is fantastic i think we should all memorize Matthew 5 through 7 this is where he famously reminds everyone of what was technically written but what was the deeper heart of God behind it? Matthew 5, 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Yeah, we just read it. We've heard it. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him and others also, and other, the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. That's a tough message. Right, Jesus blows this whole thing open. He says the heart was always equality, which means even considering the offender to be important and worthy of love. Why not take it a step further and pursue them and one might say bless them? Obviously, the situation can and has been incredibly abused. So there is circumstantial, there, it's not just a one-to-one, but the heart is there, right? You are blessed to be a blessing. Right? And that blessed to be a blessing is a phrase that should take us all the way back further than priests, further than Moses, to the literal beginning 
of the story of Israel to God's first promise to Abraham. Genesis 12, 2, And I will make you, Abraham, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Right? If God is blessing his people, it's almost never for the people to take and hold it for themselves. It is always to then turn and bless others. It's meant to be given. So we're back to 1 Peter, verse 9. Bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Okay, it's, this, it's cyclical. There's a cycle. You are blessed by God, salvation of sins, so that you may now be a blessing. Because as we look back in 1 Peter, he's been building this argument, right? The beauty thing of the letter is it's not just each chapter is its own thought. The whole thing is Peter's thought. He's been building these arguments. 1 Peter 1.3 says, because this is what you can look back on. According to his great mercy, he has called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We are so surrounded by God's blessing. It is ridiculous to not be overjoyed and to share that blessing. But here's the human condition, right? Literally from the first few pages of the Bible, right? What was the deception of the slippery serpent, right? Don't focus on what God has for you. Focus on what you don't have. Focus on what he's keeping from you. But that one tree, you have all this, but that one thing you can't have, right? That is is a tension we live in. Much like the philosophers of the time who were trying to answer that question, what is happiness? What is human thriving? What's the best way to be human? Peter doesn't just offer up some psychoanalysis of, or feeling, but he actually quotes Psalm 34. Okay, this is verse 10 of our passage today. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, the context for this psalm is pretty awesome. And at first I wanted to get into it, but it was just a little too much. Um, But like most, I'll summarize this way, like most psalms that David writes um, that are just heavy and good and whatever, he's usually unhappy in his circumstances, right? And if you look at this context, he is being hunted, he is scared, he is hungry, he is alone, doesn't know who he can trust. Circumstantially, he is completely unhappy completely unhappy, but then he writes this incredibly profound proof that happiness in terms of righteousness is not based on feelings or circumstances. Let's walk through this real quick. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. Do we desire that? Yeah, right? That sounds great. This is the first thing. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. You want to love life? It doesn't start externally it starts internally. Your thoughts and your words. Okay, thoughts and your words. Next, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Keep your actions from evil and just start doing good. Okay, it's not what saves you, but you just start doing good. One way I've heard it before is do what Jesus would do if he were you. Okay, turn away, do good, seek peace, pursue. These are all action words. 
Like, let's do something about it. Verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. At the end of the day, the paths that we choose, and the paths that the first century Jews and Gentiles, as Peter is writing to them, are choosing, is either pursuing a path of righteousness or pursuing a path of evil. Right? The beauty of, of the grace of Jesus is not that we wouldn't have to suffer. Here's the beauty of it. It's that we didn't have to be perfect. Christ was perfect. He was sinless. He became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He perfectly became sin for us so we could be free to live righteously imperfectly, right? And here's the encouragement. There's going to be people that ridicule that. There's going to be people that think it's hypocritic, right? We'll talk about that in a little bit. But verse 13, he says, Peter says, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? This harkens to Paul's thought, Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? Often in our world, suffering for doing the right thing is all too prevalent, and it just stinks. Can I say that? It just stinks. It'd be really nice if doing the right thing was always incredible. <laughs> it was always the best, felt good, everyone praised it, bells and whistles, celebration, right? But it's that deeper magic, right? It's, that, it's good on a soul level, maybe not circumstantially. A deep recreation of our souls is where it's, it's our abiding. And, and for, again, for first century Jews and Gentiles, they're abiding in Christ and the subsequent goodness that comes from what abounds from that blessing. What can harm us on a soul level? The only thing I read about is sin. And what just got obliterated at the cross? Right? Sin, right? So that's why, verse 14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Have you ever been asked questions? Why are you a Christian? Why has it really changed your life? How has it changed your life? Why would I want to care about Jesus? Why is this Bible so important anyways? Right? We, of course, the, sh- the shame is like, okay, now we all need to go be theologians and know every single little thing in the world, right? We don't all need to be a theolo- theologians or know what each passage is. We need to be studying and pursuing God's Word, studying and pursuing the way of righteousness. But this is a throwback to 1 Peter 2 and 3. He says, for those of you, since you have tasted that the Lord is good, you do have the answer for the hope that is in you. It doesn't have to be complicated or an impressive one, right? You have tasted that the Lord is good. He has changed your life. And this so often, instead of creating clarity and a message filled with grace, this caused rifts because it just turns into arguing. Right? You can imagine first century Jews and Gentiles that just now are believing this faith that's not very old and how people are ridiculing them and how they're arguing back and how much there could be this fighting that's going on. It turns into, no matter what the era is, world philosophy versus Christian thought. Right? This is the debate. Right? We don't know anything about that right, today. Right? Thus, instead, though, of having these heated arguments or debates, what does First Peter write? Or Peter in First Peter write, Yet do it with gentleness and respect, 
having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. I heard a quote once, I couldn't find the originator of it, but it said, you might be the only Bible someone ever reads. It's your witness of the goodness of God, that, that good you have tasted in Christ, not the completeness of your arguments that could compel someone to follow Jesus. Right? That's the only way you can live at peace within the existing structures of society where following Jesus is a foreign thing. It's not our arguments. Right? And he's telling this to first century Jews, it's not your arguments, but your humility and the goodness of God that's on display. Of course, the inverse of this, what can often happen then, is this, uh, this, this judgmental or, or being a hypocrite could turn into, right? Because it looks like you're being gracious, it looks like we're listening or not fighting, but really just kind of judging on people. And the Apostle Paul talks about hypocrites, right? And of course, Christianity has some of the largest faults in this area, but calling out hypocrisy of judging others instead of yourself, he writes this, Romans 2, 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, this is huge, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindness. The fact that kindness undeserved could ultimately win the argument, that is grace. That is grace. But grace is hard. Here's, Peter char- here's Peter's charge to this, verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Suffering for doing evil just makes sense. It's just the proper equation. You do evil, there's suffering. But it's better if your suffering is because you did something good. For suffering is not foreign to our God. What does he write? For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. I love that. Righteous for the unrighteous. Is that not the gospel? Now, speaking of Spirit, and as we move to close, we get this seemingly kind of of out-of-nowhere spiritual insight and historical recognition at the end of our letter, okay? First, I want to take it in reverse order. First, the historical recognition, okay? This is uh, the last half of verse 20. In the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. When you first read this, did that seem kind of weird? Like, why would, he throw, why would he bring this up, you know? Well, first of all, let's feel good about ourselves, okay? If you're ever confused about, like, what, why was he so specific? Why eight persons? Like, why this, whatever? Noah had three sons, and they each had a wife, okay? We feel good? Eight people. Great, we're theologians, okay? Now let's go back, verse 19. In which he, Christ, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited. Now this is getting more into like some deep stuff, right? And anything remotely spiritual or theological in nature that can't just be exactly, like we could just do that, right? Noah plus three sons, four wives, eight people, right? That was like factual, we get that, right? This, we can't quite, like, what does that mean? What is spirits in prison? What is this going to be? Of course, there's like 17 different translations, 17 different theories of what this could be, right? Here's my friendly advice for anything that is like confusing. What, what is this? What it could be? Don't just let some teacher or somebody tell you what it is. I would highly encourage, get a trusted friend, 
pray together, and then study this stuff. There's lots and lots and lots of different things and ways to look at passages like this and to read through them, um, right? But just know that, like, this is Scripture. The other stuff we read can be helpful, but other stuff is not Scripture, okay? So that's friendly advice. Um, But I'll just talk about the two main interpretations that actually end up having the same result. The two main interpretations of this is, of course, we believe in God, right? So, of course, there's this spiritual realm that we know little about. And one of the main interpretations of this passage is the spirits in prison are the fallen angels, okay? Fallen angels, heavenly beings that do not want the thing that Jesus can provide. Okay, they've rebelled against King Jesus. They've now come to reside on earth as their little kingdom influencing God's creation. Another interpretation is this is actually hearkening back to the humans who are living in Noah's day where their spirit was imprisoned in bodies that did not follow or believe in God. Okay, so look what was later written about Noah in Hebrews 11, as he was counted as a man of faith. His story is one of faith. 11, Hebrews 11:7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, just put ourselves in that position. Just think about someone who did not listen to God or listen to Noah. Standing there, potentially ridiculing Noah for his beliefs, choosing to not listen to God or to trust his word, Noah gives the last call for anyone to jump on, and he closes up the ark for good. When the rains come and Noah and his family float away and are saved, the ones who scorned him are left with the consequences of their decisions. Right? The condemnation did not come when the floods came. It came when they did not listen to God and repent. That was the moment that it came. Now think about the fallen angels. They look on now at the cross, and they see Jesus' resurrection, and they realize they picked the wrong side. He was the King and the Messiah. Either way, if you read it and you're like, I think it's spirits, angelic beings, I think it's human beings, it's still the same. Right? Jesus won. If you're not on the side of Jesus, you're on the wrong side, right? These are the hints of what potentially has happened and what could happen. But now, for Peter to write to first century Jews and for us today through God's eternal word, there is still a chance for repentance, right? This is likened to Noah's story, right? Remember these warnings. Remember these stories. Remember God's faithfulness throughout all time. And what could be, I'm calling you to repentance, There's a chance for this through the water, okay? It was through the waters, as we look at the biblical narrative, that remade the world, and now through Jesus' teachings on baptism and teachings like 1 Peter today, this has been given a significant spiritual meaning. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? Baptism, the outward expression of the inward faith in Jesus. This is the renewal, the rebirth that spiritually happens when we listen and obey and turn our hearts to Jesus. By doing so, by doing that, not in like a haughty way or a savage or twisted or angry way, but by doing that, we actively condemn the ways of the world. 
right? It's leaving the world to the fate, saying, you have your masters, you have your gods, you have your beliefs, but my belief, where I'm going to rest in and where I'm going to be renewed by is, verse 22, as Peter says, the one who has gone into heaven and who is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The Lord supreme over heaven and earth, all praise is to Jesus. And this truth is what Peter is encouraging the church, reading this letter to just stay rooted in, as you live out your days in a society that, in a society that doesn't accept your faith, do so in humility and commitment to showing the goodness of God to the world around you. Don't use your words to argue and divide, but follow in the self-sacrificial ways of Jesus where your happiness is not determined by your circumstances. It's counterintuitive to the world. Now I'm going to circle back as we close to the question we've been asking ourselves as we walked through this book. How are we doing with all this church? How are we doing? Are we, Hub City, right here, right now in Albany, are we marked by unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind? Are we looking for happiness in the ways our culture describes it? As we have tasted and seen the goodness of God, is that what we are bearing witness to in our lives and relationships? Like these are important questions for us to ask individually and then actually answer in community. Right? There's, it's a deepness because there's accountability that comes with that when you answer those questions in community. Next week, we're going to start chapter four and it's going to get real practical on what it looks like to be this follower that, that lives in this reality of those core Christian values. And listen, we went all over the place today, and I love to nerd out and see all these connections, this kind of thing. But if you're, and if you're like me, you love that as well. But everything we read about Jesus, about Peter, about first century Jews, about us today, it should always lead us back to repentance. It should always turn our hearts and our minds to God. It should always lead us to live as a radical people of grace and generosity. It should always lead others to witness our love for one another. And this is the charge of the scriptures and for us today. So as we respond today, this morning with singing, with prayer, with giving of our earthly treasures, as we go to the table and remember it is only because of Christ's goodness, his grace and his sacrifice, that he became sin. He who knew no sin became sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. It's only because of Jesus that we can be brought from death to life and now be a blessing as we were blessed. It's only because in the name of Jesus we can say, amen. Would you pray with me and let's respond today.